0: Open up your personal copy of the Word of God to Paul's letter to the Church of the Ephesians. We are returning to this great letter after a break here for the summer. Labor Day weekend, last, represents sort of the official end of the summer season, doesn't it? And with it, it draws to a close that vacation period. It's good to have a vacation. I recommend it. I like it myself. And one of my favorite vacations is a road trip. I really enjoy just getting in the car and with my wife and, and driving and being able to see the beauty of God's creation and stop when I want to, <laughs> see what I want to along the way. But as I like to go on driving vacations, I also want to know where I'm going. I want a map. I want a map. I want to know where I'm going, where I've been, how far I have to go to the next stop. I, I like that situational awareness of just kind of knowing how the, the lay of the land is. And so my wife is an excellent map reader, and so I can always call out to her, where are we, how much further, that sort of thing. And, and so when I just think about the, the book of Ephesians that we're returning to this morning after having been gone from it. Basically, all summertime, I think of it in the terms of of kind of a, a map. This morning is is to look at the map. It's to figure out where have we been and where are we going, and and so that's what I want to do with you this morning. It's really, in many ways, just kind of a very lengthy introduction to pick this book back up again and to continue with our with our studies here in it. And so we're going to look at the big picture this morning. Where have we been? And where are we going? And basically, just as a way of reminder, this letter conveniently divides, it's a six-chapter letter, and it conveniently divides into two sections, a front half and a back half, or chapters one through three, representing the first half of the book, which is where Paul does some very... A serious theological teaching, and so it's, it's normally considered the, the doctrine side of the book or the theology side of the book. And, and then for chapters 4, 5, and 6, it's often thought of as the duty side or the application side of the great theology that, that Paul has taught in these, these prior chapters, chapters 1 through 3. And so, again, just by way of reminder, and you know we're going to be picking it up in chapter 5, so it seemed like it was profitable to figure out how do we get to where we got to in chapter 5. And to do that, I take you back to chapter 1 to quickly just lift out some ideas for you to remind you of them, because they're going to be significant. It's not like, well, I taught you all that theology, now you can forget it all and we're going to move on to other things. No, Paul's going to root his teaching in chapter 5 in the great theology that he has taught us in chapters 1 and following. So as you look at chapter 1, just let your eyes glance at verses 3 through 5, because there Paul introduces really the foundation of it all. And this is, this is God's electing love and, and our union with Christ. This is the basis of of our of our stand before our God, and it is, the, it is the, the foundation of our unity together as a church. And so Paul says here in chapter 1, in, beginning in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So it's in union with Christ that all of these blessings are ours. Just as he chose us, again you see it, in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. So Paul lays out here the basis of our spiritual blessings lie in God's electing love, that has drawn us in space and time into union with Christ, where we, as the adopted sons of God, united with his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, experience all of the blessings that God has set aside for us. Paul goes on further here in chapter 1 to speak of this Christ and his resurrection, because it is the power of the resurrection that is the same power that that makes certain our redemption. That is, the power of God to raise Christ from the dead and to exalt him to the right hand of God above all authority, all rule over the entire universe is that same power that is enlisted on the basis, on the benefit rather, of you and I to bring us to the place of adoption as sons. And you, you see it here in the end of verse 19 of the same chapter and then on through where he says, These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. In other words, the power that raised Christ from the dead and that seated Christ at the right hand of the Father is the same power that holds you and I. It's the power that saves us. It's the power that holds us. This Christ, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this life or this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So he reminds us here in chapter one of these incredible truths, and he's going to swing back to them, as we'll see when we get to our new study, our new materials in chapter five. As we look at chapter 2, we're again, along that same theme, we are are introduced to the power of the grace of God that makes us alive from the dead, right? In uh, chapter 2, verse 5, where he says, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. It is the grace of God that has brought us from the dead. And it is the grace of God that bringing us alive from the dead sets our lives on a new path, a new course. He gives us a, a new charter, and you see it in verse 10 of chapter 2, where he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. In other words, when he made us alive from the dead, when he he regenerated our spiritually dead hearts, he gave us not only new life, but a new direction in life. He didn't just save us and and leave us on our own to continue to pursue the futility of our formerly darkened days, but he, he set us on the path of life, and that path of life includes the good works that he has ordained for us from the very beginning, and those good works are outlined for us later in this same letter. But not only that, Paul would continue to say here in chapter 2, but as he has regenerated these dead souls, he has done so for both Jew and Gentile, and he has brought them together as a one new man. This one new man, verse 15, is is uh, breaks down the ancient barriers that, that were raised up between the, the, the Jew and the Gentile. The ancient hostilities have been broken there in the, in, through the cross of Christ. And so the Jew no longer has an advantage or a priority over the Gentiles. We come before the, the, the creator God of the universe, our loving Father, in union with Jesus Christ on equal footing on equal footing, in which he has formed us into this one new man, verse 15, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. In other words, the Jewish law that kept us separated, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. And Paul will go on to say in verses 18 and following to the end of that chapter, that this one new man it becomes a new temple in whom the spirit of god dwells and that one new man the church becomes the temple the new temple in which the spirit of god dwells that takes us to chapter 3 where there paul continues the theme of this multi ethnic church this new reality that the boundaries and barriers that, that separate peoples are broken down in Christ. You remember that, that part of the, of the consequence of the, of, uh, of the fall into sin and, and the judgment brought on the flood when, when Noah brought his, his family through the flood and, and the world was beginning to be repopulated, that they were told to, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole earth, but they refused to do so. And so they, they stayed together, and they, and they refused God in that. And you remember God came down, and, and, he, and he confused the languages there at the Tower of Babel and, and scattered people. And in the process of confusing the languages, it, it drove people apart, and, and by driving them apart, it, it began the process of creating these ethnic barriers that, that cause us to be suspicious of one another, that, that that are the genesis often of violence, one towards another. And so Paul says, here in the church, Christ is doing something new. He is, in a sense, reversing part of the effect of the, of the Tower of Babel. Now, in the church, we don't all speak the same language, of course, so that barrier itself has not been removed, and I presume will be removed somehow in the eternal kingdom. But for now, even though on the other side of the globe, and we saw, just saw a video illustration of that, that there are people in, in, in PNG, for example, that, that we can't communicate with, yet we are, we are brought together in this church. We share a common goal, a common bond, a common affinity and love. And those from the team who were there will tell you that although they were limited, very limited in their communications, they still were able to sense the fellowship that has been brought about through the work of the Spirit in in the effect of the gospel. And so this drawing together, this mystery church, as it were, demonstrates the, the manifold wisdom and power of Christ both to the angelic realm. Paul says that in verse 10 of chapter 3, right? The manifold wisdom of God might be now made known to the church, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It demonstrates to the church that the power of God, the wisdom of God through the power of the cross is greater than what holds people apart, and also that it is Uh, proclaimed through the church of God and the children of God for all eternity. Verse 19, to him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So those are a few of of the incredibly profound theological realities that Paul lays out for us in the first three chapters of this great letter. And then Paul begins to call for transition and to to call for change. And, And basically what he says is that it's in light of the reality of what has happened in Jesus Christ that the believers there in emphasis are to appropriate these truths day by day and to live differently than the world around them, to live differently than they once lived. And by extension, he would be saying the same thing to you and I this morning. If by faith you have embraced the work of Christ on your behalf, then you have become a new creature and all of that theology is true of you and therefore you are new and you need to live new. And so chapters 4, 5, and 6 are the application of that and a call for us, you and I, to live differently, to think differently, to, to, to be lights to a dark world. Because Christ has changed us. He has changed us. And specifically, Paul picks up and uses a, a metaphor repeatedly in chapters 4 and 5. And that metaphor is walking. He uses the verb translated walking as a metaphor for, for life to express what it means to live out the new life in union with Jesus Christ. Once dead, now alive, formerly living in a, in darkness, now living in light, walk in that light. And so he begins to to five different times look at different aspects of our lives and to say it has to be it has to change. It has to be brought in conformity with the truth about who we really are. We need to examine all these aspects of our lives and by faith, not just, you know, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and saying, I'm going I'm to do better next time. No, in, in dependence upon the spiritual truth given to us in chapters 1, 2, and 3, that, that I am different. We are different. The power within us now is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. By that power, in dependence on the Spirit of God, we're going to live differently. We're going to live very differently. And so, as I say five times now, beginning in chapter 4, he talks about walking. And so in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16 chapters 4, 1 through 16, he says we need to walk in unity. He begins by addressing the the church, the local church itself. And he says that we need to walk in unity. We need to be characterized by gentleness with one another, by deference to one another, by, by ministering the, the gifts of, that the Spirit of God has given to each one of us for the common good, for the benefit of one another. Again, think about this. The darkened world, the unsaved world, is a, is a world that is splintered, that is shattered, that is constantly at each other's throat in hostility. Those that are new in Christ are to be characterized by just the opposite of that, gentleness. Let's just pick on that one for a moment. All right? The world is not a gentle place. You don't have to live very long to learn that. The world is not a gentle place. And yet, as new creatures in Jesus Christ, you and I are called upon to live gently, to be gentle people, to imitate our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself was Gentle. We are to live humbly. We are to live deferring to one another, considering each other as more important than ourselves. And in other words, instead of serving ourselves, we're to be seeking to serve other people. We're to be diligent, verse 3 of chapter 4, to preserve what already exists, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In other words, we don't create the unity. Christ created the unity by by we being adopted into his body. We are united, but we're to preserve it. We're to preserve the unity because everything in the world would seek to break us apart, would seek to, to, to come in to divide us. And, and the truth of the matter is even our, re, our battle with residual sin would seek to divide us. It, 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 humility is a difficult characteristic to pursue, right? Right? Uh, We are very proud people. And so pride drives us to pride. Humility draws us together. And so we are to to humble our hearts, to walk in unity with one another, and to to minister the gifts he has given to us for the benefit of one another. That's essentially what he talks about in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. He then... Goes on in in uh, chapter four, verses seventeen through thirty-two, to talk about walking in holiness. To walk in holiness, because we cannot walk together in unity if we don't walk together in holiness. We don't walk together in holiness. Our sin spills over onto other people. It's it's unavoidable because we have been brought into the unity with one another. And so we don't sin unto ourselves. Our sin spills over onto other people. And so Paul talks about here in verses 17 to 32, he uses the, the metaphor of putting off and putting on. Of putting off the old man. And putting on the new, that is, to, that is to, to stop thinking like our former darkened state, right? And to begin to, to think as we really are in Christ. So, for example, he says, verse 22, in reference to your former manner of life, I'm here in chapter 4, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And then he goes on to give specific examples of what it means to put off and to put on, to put off the old man, to put on the new. So he talks about our speech, that lying is no longer to to characterize us. Instead, we're supposed to be truth speakers. He talks about anger and how to deal with that. He talks about stealing and in verse 28, and the need to stop stealing and, and work and give generously. And, and then he continues to go on and talk about the, the sins of the mouth and bitterness down in verse 31, and wrath and anger and slander and all that stuff is supposed to be put away from us and replaced instead with a, with a kindness and a tenderheartedness, verse 32, and a forgiving spirit. Why? Because you and I have been forgiven so much. We have been forgiven so much. There is nothing... There is nothing that anyone can do to us that will come anywhere near what we have, how we have offended God. God has forgiven us so much. It is a small matter to forgive others their sin against us. And that is what characterizes one who is walking in holiness. One who is walking in holiness. He then goes on in chapter 5 with the third use of the metaphor to walk. And in verses 1 through 6, he talks about walking in love. He talks about walking in love. Where he says, verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us as an, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And as he continues here, he he talks about love in the context of our sexuality, in the context of our sexuality. And basically what he he expresses here in in verses 3 through 6 is that sexuality is is a gift from God, a gift from God, a wonderful gift from God, but it is to be used only to love and serve others. It is to be used to love and serve others rather than to degrade other people or degrade ourselves when we give in to lustful passions. So to love is to control our sexuality and to express it in the legitimate and lawful way of marriage. One man, one woman, for life. God's good gift of love. Walk in Love, not lust. Walk in love, not lust. And then he introduces in verses 7 through 14 that we are to walk in light. We're to walk in light. He says, verse 7, Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Walk as children of light. In other words, that we are to be, to be like, like little lanterns as we move about in society and specifically here within the church. That, that our, our attitude, our outlook, our activities have, have so changed that we not only personally avoid walking in the darkness... And again, running through this section is underneath all of this is is sexual sin because sexual sin was a real problem in the first century, kind of like it's a real problem in the 21st century. And so as we are walking in the light, avoiding the deeds of darkness, Paul would say that it's not just good enough that you and I abstain, but we have a responsibility and a role, and you just think back to his earlier statement there in in chapter 4 about being in unity together, we have a responsibility to one another. In other words, is that we are to to bring the light of the gospel to bear in the lives of our brothers and sisters in order to help them escape the soul-damaging darkness of their former way of life. And you see it here when he says, verse 11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Instead, even expose them. And that's a difficult thing to do. It's difficult to, to, to come to someone in, in a loving, humble, gracious way and say, can, can, I, can I help you here? Because, because you're, you're off the path. You, 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 are, you are walking in the darkness here and, and something has to change. You are, you are living your life in an, in an active betrayal of who you profess to be in Jesus Christ. I need, I, I need to help you. Love compels me to help you. And again, we live in a world in which it's kind of a, you know, hey, don't don't uh, talk to anybody, don't interfere in anybody's life. You know, who are you to to try to talk to me and so forth? And in the process of reserving this autonomy to ourselves that is not real, people are siloed and isolated and buried in the darkness. Sitting here on a Sunday morning, surrounded by light bearers, and still buried in the darkness. We need to love one another enough to speak the truth, and to walk in the light. You remember in application of this section here, I, I did a, I think it was a three or four part, I don't even remember, five part, how many parts was it? It was a, it was a series, so you remember, on modesty. Do you remember that series? That was just earlier this year. We talked about modesty, and, and then we finished talking about entertainment and our entertainment choices. And how we need to, the, the light of the gospel needs to shine into every single aspect of our lives, including our entertainment choices and including the way we think about our bodies and the way we clothe our bodies and the way we interact with people. This is to walk in the light. And then Paul gives us the fifth one. And this is where we begin new material. The fifth one is to walk in wisdom. The fifth one is to walk in wisdom. We need to walk in unity, right? We need to, to uh, walk in holiness. We need to walk in love. We need to walk in light. And we need to walk in wisdom. And that begins here in chapter 5 and verse 15. And actually, the, this section of walking in wisdom... Carries us all the way through in the letter through chapter 6 and verse 9. So the, the the walk in wisdom is 515 to 69, one whole big section. Notice how Paul starts here in verse 15. He says, Therefore be careful how you walk. Therefore be careful how you walk. Now, you know the use of, of the, the, the therefore is to cause our eyes to to think about what has preceded. Right? There's a, it's a summary kind of a statement, and and the thought he's picking up here, I believe, is in verses ten and eleven, where he says we're 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 trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, or or said another way, that we're that we're um, that we're trying to prove we're proving out in our lives what is pleasing to the Lord. And we're not to participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but even to expose them. So in other words, be careful how you walk. Don't participate in that. Work hard at living your life in the power of the Spirit in a way that displays that which is pleasing to God Come alongside and expose to the light of the gospel. Your, your brother and sister's sin for the purpose not of censoring them or humiliating them, but for helping them escape the darkness that has, that has closed in around them. And in light of all of that, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. Not as unwise men, but as wise. Beloved, we live in the middle of a minefield. A minefield. You know, if you find yourself uh, somehow, and there are, there are parts of the world, it's terrible. There, there are parts of the world where, where conflict has raged back and forth and, and foreign armies have, have sowed landmines. You know, Vietnam, places like that where you've got to be very, very careful. You, you could find yourself in a, in a minefield. And you know when you're in, when you're in a minefield, you don't dare move, right? Because the next step could be the end of it all. And so we live, as it were, in a, in a mental minefield. And and Paul talks about it here. He he warns, for example, back in chapter four and verse fourteen about false teachers. There are the landmines, the pitfalls of false teachers that are out there that are that are trying to to uh, through through trickery and, and deceitful scheming and so forth, to, to pick you off, to, to draw you away in, in, into, into some knockoff religion that, that claims to be Christian but has neglected the heart and soul of Christianity, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so there are the false teachers out there. Beyond that, there is there is that formally darkened way of thinking that, that is always right at hand and, and seeking to, to take us captive. Again, back to verse, uh, chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, where he talks about the futility of, of the mind of the unbeliever and the darkened understanding and the ignorance and, and hardness of heart. That's you and I before Christ has redeemed us. And it doesn't all go away in a day. So it's still out there and it's still lurking to take you captive. And so we need to be very careful of that. We need to be careful of the sexual immorality and the sensual pleasures that are lurking everywhere and, and, and can easily overcome us. And can easily, we, we need to guard our eyes. We need to guard our hearts. We need to be careful what we put in, what we listen to, where we go, who we interact with. Or we could step on a landmine and blow our legs off. We need to watch our step. We need to be wise in our approach to our new life in Christ. Be careful, Paul says here, how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. Now, Paul's going to do something here grammatically, and I'm going to, um, I just want to kind of walk you through this because it, it ties this whole section together. This careful approach that he's calling for here in chapter 15. He actually lays out for us. He doesn't leave us to wonder what it means to walk carefully through this minefield. He lays it out for us, and he does through, through, through a series of five imperatives or five commands. And they are arranged, these five commands are arranged into three, what I'm calling, not-but statements. Okay, so, so grammatically, that's how this thing comes together. There are five commands that are arranged into three not-but but statements not like this but like this okay that's how he's going to do this and so you'll see in verse 15 the first of the three not but statements be careful how you walk not as unwise men but as wise do you see it not like this which is unwise or foolish but like this wisdom Right? So be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making, verse 16, the most of your time because the days are evil. Making the most of your time because the days are evil. So what does it mean to be wise? What does it mean to be wise? He's, he's calling us to, to walk, to live as wise people. Well, In, a, in its most simplistic definition, to walk in wisdom is to, is to walk as one who is skilled in the affairs of life. One who, who is skilled in living life. That is a person who is wise. And he says that we are, we are here supposed to make the most of our time, or some translations uh, translate the verb here as redeeming the time. Maybe you have it that way in your Bible. That we are to you know, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. Redeeming the time for the, because the days are easel, evil. Uh, this, this verb here it, it has the idea of buying up. It carries the idea of, of going to the marketplace and, and looking around for something specific. And when you find it, you buy it. Okay, Those of you who like to yard sale, uh, you know what I'm talking about, right? You go from place to place to place. You're looking for something. And when you see it, you snatch it for 25 cents. Okay? And Paul is saying here that, that to, to walk in wisdom is to be looking for the bargain, looking for the opportunity. And when it comes to you, you make the most of it. Okay, You make the most of it. And interesting here, when he says, uh, uh, make the most of your time, the the word he's using here is not uh, chronos, which is uh, the Greek word that speaks about time the way that you and I typically do, which is, you know, there's 60 seconds in a minute, and 60 minutes in an hour, and 24 hours in a day, and, you know, that sort of time. He uses the word uh, kairos, and, and it means season or opportunity. Well, seasons or opportunity. So we are not to walk as foolish people. We are to walk as skilled people on the hunt, on the lookout, looking for the opportunities uh, to, to, to grab onto and make the most of. Why? Because the days are evil. The days are evil. In other words, uh, the, uh, life is, is li- being lived in rebellion to God. And so if we just float, if we just uh, fall in with the unsaved world, then, then, then we end up participating in that evil. And he says, we can't do that. We can't do that. It's all around us. So we have to have an eye for what is good, for what is wise, to, to look for those opportunities to do good to other people. Think with me about something. Wouldn't it have been easier once Christ saved you if he just took you to heaven, don't you think? Have you ever, have you ever like, thought about that? You know, Jesus, beam me up. Right? Why doesn't he do that? I mean, then, um, if he were to do that and, and, you know, to save you and take you to heaven, and then this whole struggle against sin would, you wouldn't have it. Doesn't it seem like that would be a better idea? Yeah. But it's not. It's not a better idea. Because it is God's plan for us to to display us as as trophies of his grace to the angelic realm, right? Chapter 3. And to the world that looks on. If he just saved us and took us to heaven, that would be amazing, but it's nowhere near the amazing, how amazing as it is that he takes his enemies, he makes us his sons, and then he transforms us into the likeness of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we gain victory over sin and become his hands and feet to help others in their struggles too. This is far more amazing. This is far more God-glorifying. And so Paul is saying, listen, you're here for a reason. He hasn't taken you home yet. And the reason he hasn't taken you home is because you got work to do. you got work to do. And this is a direct confrontation on the, on the, the life of self-focus, right? Of self-gratification. That's, that's, that's the American way. And yet, what we're to do here is, to, is in complete contradiction to the American way. can't help but think about Psalm 90. There, the Psalm of Moses, he, he writes that, and he says in verse 10 that um, basically, you know, the average lifespan is 70, he says. And, and he goes on to say, or if, if you have strength, it's 80. But be it 70 or 80, uh, the, the days pass quickly. There's nothing to be proud about in it. Soon you're going to be gone. You will soon be gone. I will soon be gone. So reflecting on that reality in Psalm 90 and verse twelve, Moses says, So teach us to number our days, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Understand. Whether you're young here this morning or or whether you're old, life is short. It's just a, a, the flicker of a candle and it's gone. It's the steam above a coffee cup, as James would say. And it's gone. So make the most of it. Seize the opportunity. Look for the bargains. And serve others with your life. Redeem the opportunities. That's what it means to walk in wisdom. The second he gives us here in verse 17, the, the second, not this, but this statement. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Not like this, don't, don't be foolish, but like this, that is, to, to understand the will of the Lord. Understand the will of the Lord. who is foolish is kind of the idea of senseless or ignorant or... You know, without reason, even stupid, kind of, a, kind of a notion. He says, don't be like that. Don't be like that. But instead, understand the will of the Lord. In other words, put the pieces together. We talk about the will. Of, what's the will of the Lord? You know, everybody wants to know the will of the Lord because what they really want to know is what's my future? Uh, but sorry, he can't know that. But, you know, interestingly, in chapter 1, I want to turn you back to chapter 1. The will of the Lord is a theme that dominates chapter 1. So as you, as, if you were hearing this letter for the first time, or you, you know, you're reading through it and, and it, and it says here, then don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. you go, wait a minute. Just like 10 minutes ago, I kept hearing these statements about the will of the Lord. It, I bet if I'm supposed to understand the will of the Lord, I, I bet I'm supposed to understand these statements that speak of the will of the Lord. So here they are, like, Chapter 1, verse 1 Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of the Lord. In other words, that, that Paul has become the messenger of Christ by the will of the Lord for a specific purpose. And that purpose is to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. And he is uniquely suited by God to do that. And he does. And in fact, it is the life of the Apostle Paul in that mission to the Gentiles that occupies the second half of the book of Acts, right? It is the Apostle Paul, through his amanuensis, through his his secretaries, as it were, that that pens 13 out of the 21 epistles. In other words, he, he basically writes half of the New Testament. What is the will of the Lord? The will of the Lord is for Paul to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to build the church of Jesus Christ. Verse 5. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. In other words, it's the will of the Lord that, that brought about our predestination unto adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. That's the will of the Lord. Or verses nine and ten, where he says he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. It is the will of the Lord to gather up all of creation under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That is the will of the Lord. It is, to, it is to set him above all as the great messianic king. This is God's will. Verses 11 through 14. It is the will of the Lord, the will of God, that Jews and Gentiles have an inheritance together with Christ. And that inheritance is guaranteed by the sealing of the Holy Spirit of God. Don't be foolish. Don't be stupid. Don't be senseless. Understand what God is doing. And have it set your priorities. Have it set your priorities. I mean, it is foolish as a Christian to to order our lives in a way that contradicts the cosmic purposes of Christ. Christ. Jesus said, I will build my what? Church. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail. I will do this. So if that's true, there can be no greater goal or purpose for our lives than to get on board with what Jesus is doing. To use the vernacular of Foothill Bible Church, it's making, maturing, and multiplying disciples of Jesus Christ. Don't be senseless. Don't be senseless. God is building a church. And we're to be building the church as his hands and feet. Making disciples. That's why he doesn't take us home when he first saves us. There's work to do. Walking in wisdom, making the most of our opportunities, being actively involved in disciple-making, and the third one here for us in verse 18, chapter 5. Not like this, but this, is to be filled with the Spirit. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Right? Not like this, not drunk with wine, but like this, filled with the Spirit. This is what it means to walk in wisdom, is to be Spirit-filled. To be Spirit-filled. Now let me show you something What I think is really cool. The, we're going to come back to this next week, by the way. Spirit-filling, okay, I've got a lot I want to say. Can't say it this morning, so we're coming back. But I do want to show you this grammatically because I think it's just so really Helpful to us when we talk about what does it mean to be spirit-filled, right? Be filled with it. This isn't imperative. This is a command. We are to be filled with the spirit. That's a command we're to obey. But Paul gives us, uh, beginning in verse 19 and running all the way um, in following uh, through verse 21, and um, he gives us five what's called parsibles. Five parsibles. they're a, they're a form of, a, of the verb, and it's, it's I don't want to get lost in that. They're, they're I-N-G words, how's that? Is that good enough? There are five of them here, and what's really cool is they are the evidences of a spirit-filled life. They are, they are grammatically uh, um, subject to the main verb, which is to be filled with the spirit. So what does being filled with the spirit look like? Well, I'm glad you asked. There are, there are five things that characterize it. And here's where it gets even cooler. The, the fifth one, in verse 21, being subject to one another or submitting to one another, is, is further elaborated, beginning in verse 22 all the way through chapter 6 and verse 9, in the household relationships that follow. So when you take it all together, when you, when you pull together all of this, beginning in verse 18 all the way through chapter 6 and verse 9, what you see are the, the, the characteristics of a life of a believer that is filled with the Spirit. All right. So we're just going to look these super fast. Here they are, super fast. Don't be drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. What does it look like? Verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Speaking to one another, that's your first participle. What does it look like to, have, to be spirit-filled? It means to, to speak to one another, horizontal communication through singing. Through singing. Okay, so we sing together here. Why do we sing? Is because God, you know, he's like really impressed with our voices? Not so much. We sing because I need to hear the truth of the gospel. And you need to hear it too. I need to be reminded because, because I'm forgetful. My faith grows weak and I, and I, and I begin to doubt. Me, I'm in the midst of a difficult circumstance Of my life, and 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 Christ just seems kind of remote to me, and and I come here, and you sing these great truths, and and my faith is strengthened. All right, I'm going out on a limb here. Evidence of spirit-filled life: singing. Lack of singing, you fill it in. The next two participles here are, are related, and, and we see that by the connection of the and. And Paul here deals with musical praise directed vertically. Horizontally first, vertically now. Right? Singing and making melody. Those are your two participles. Singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. In other words, it's, it's, the, it's the musical expression of praise to God. It's the song in the shower. It's the song in the car. It's the song you're whistling as you're, as you're working and don't even know it. It's the tune you're humming. It's the, the words that are going through your head. In other words, it's a heart that's overflowing with, the, with the, the love of the gospel of Jesus Christ that just comes out of us. Can't stop it. Fourth, participle. Of the spirit filled life. Verse 20, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Evidence of a spirit filled life is a thankful heart. A thankful heart. And notice how he says it it's to be constant. Thankfulness is to be thankful for everything. That's not just the good things. It's to express that gratitude, right, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, based on the merit of Christ, we approach who? God the Father. Let me show you something. Go back to Romans with me, chapter 1, verse 21. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Paul here is characterizing the darkness of unbelief. What is it that characterizes those who do not know God? Right? Now, Paul says everyone knows God, right, deep inside, because God has made it known to them, right? He's made himself evident to them. They bear the very image of God. But people who do not acknowledge God, who do not want to submit to God, who do not want to follow the one true God, Verse even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Or look at this, or give thanks. Or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. One of the evidences of a spirit-filled life is a heart of gratitude. Thankfulness. One of the things that characterizes a lack of the filling of the Spirit is a life of ingratitude, a life of complaining, a life of always wanting the next thing. Never good enough. Ooh, that hurts, doesn't it? That hurts. And finally, verse 21. The fifth evidence of the spirit-filled life is submitting to one another. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, this, this verb translated submitting here or be subject to, it's a hupotasso, it's, it's a military term. It, it means to line up under, to line up under an authority. There are some out there, and in full error, I believe, that say here in verse 21, where it says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And then, of course, we know what immediately follows this, right? In verse 22, wives, to your own husbands as to the Lord. The verb is not repeated. The possible is not repeated here. It's It's assumed. Okay? And, and there are some that we'll teach here, and we're going to spend a lot of we'll time talking talk about this, but this one another is the idea that, well, husbands submit to their wives, and wives submit to their husbands, and we're, you know, we're just submitting to each other all over the place. That's not what Paul's talking about. Okay? You can't both line up under each other. Okay? You can't both line up under each other. The one another here, be subject to one another. The one another's are laid out in the household code that follows. The relationships that follow here from verse 22 all the way through chapter 6 and verse 9. What are they? It's the relationship of the marriage. There is a lining up in marriage that has to occur. And if it does not occur, then then that man and woman are not exhibiting a spirit-filled life. They are not walking in the spirit. They are walking in the flesh. Down to chapter 6 and verse 1, it it deals with children and fathers. How the home is ordered is an illustration of the spirit-filled life or not. Or not. A home characterized by by all kinds of squabbling and hostilities intergenerationally with parents and children is not a spirit-filled home. It's a home that's walking in the flesh. And then he goes on, beginning in verse 5, to talk about slaves and masters and so forth, and that's an alien to our culture, but I think there's application we can make even into the realm of employment. Spirit-filled employers, spirit-filled employees, or not. Verse 18 again. Don't do this, be drunk with wine, but do this, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Beloved, we're to walk in wisdom. That's the overarching theme of all of this. We're to walk in wisdom. And to walk in wisdom, if we're to put it simply, it's it's to live life in accordance with the radical transformation that has occurred in us when God saved us. And it's a transformation that affects every aspect of our lives. It affects the way we think and what we do. And the transformation occurs in a moment in time. The outworking of that transformation is a lifetime. A lifetime of being filled with the Spirit and acting accordingly. Let's pray. Our Father, we have just looked at a road map of where we're going here in the months ahead and we're going to need help in this because we're going to be confronted for sure in the way we think and in the way we conduct our lives. None of us none of us have arrived. There is correction that needs to happen in all of our lives. There's, there's um, residual thinking left over from our life before Christ that needs to be abandoned and, and replaced with, with the mind of Christ. And, Father, it's your spirit through his word that, that does this transformation, that changes us. We pray, Father, for, for strength and and. Uh, and your grace to help us in this, and faith to believe your word and, and to act upon it, even when it may appear contrary to fact. Help us, Lord, to, to hear and to do. Now may the God of all hope, Paul writes, fill you all with joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. May that be true. Amen and amen.